Praise God. Please take your Bibles and turn them to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5. Hopefully we'll get through several verses today. We spent a few weeks, I think, in the first few verses, uh, but now we're going to be our first couple verses, I should say. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we are doing a message that, you know, I think uh, that we don't prioritize enough this aspect of our Christian walks. It's sure prioritized by God. And when God prioritizes something, it ought to get our attention. Amen? Amen. And we ought to consider ways that we can apply His Word to our lives. Uh, And there's all kinds of opportunities to fulfill these passages that we see. Although the circumstances are quite different because our culture is quite different than what they face in those days, yet people are still in need of ministry, as we'll see. So 1 Timothy... Uh, chapter 5, verse 3, uh, says to honor widows. We're going to get covered in quite a few verses, 10 or 11 verses today. Honor widows who are widows indeed. Okay? Honor widows who are widows indeed. Now, he has t- been talking about how we are to relate to one another in the body of Christ. Amen? How are you supposed to treat older women? Like your what? Mothers. Mothers. How are you supposed to treat older men? Like your fathers. How are you supposed to treat your, your, your sisters? Or I'm sorry, the sisters in Christ? Christian ladies that are younger as your sisters. And in all purity. Amen. Joe even has that memorized. In all purity. That's an important part. You know? And, and like daughters and, you know, they're younger. How do you treat, uh, you know, young men in Christ as your brothers? Well, how do you treat the widows now? Because widows are mothers who... You know, not always mothers. Sometimes they have never had children and their, their husbands die. But typically mothers or uh, non-mother widows. How are we supposed to treat them? And he says, honor, honor widows who are widows indeed. So are there two different types of widows? Yes, there are. Who, who are the widows indeed? That's kind of his emphasis here. That's the bottom line as to what he wants to talk about, among other things as well. But you have to understand, a widow is a woman who has lost, of course, her husband has passed. He's died. He's gone on, you know, either to be with the Lord if he's a believer or into the other place, you know. And God's heart, I love God's heart. His heart breaks for the widows. I always love reading scriptures about seeing God's heart, even for animals, you know. And we see in this passage later on, which we're not studying today, but not to muzzle the ox, you know. And that's given in the context of, you know, supporting ministry and stuff. But God cares about even the ox. And some would say, well, that's not really written because God cares about the ox. Well, yeah, it's written as an example, but God certainly does care about the ox. The book of Proverbs says a righteous man takes care of his animals, right? The Bible commends people if a little uh, you know, bird is restored to its nest. you know. And Jesus cares about the, the birds, and he says the Father cares about the birds, and he clothes them, and, and uh, he sees them when they die. He visits their funerals, you know. But how much more, he says, does he care about you? And how much more does he care about widows? Widows are women who are made in the image of God. Men and women are equal before God, right? We're all human. And widows are simply older women who have become destitute to one degree or another upon their husband's deaths. And they're in need of our help. And God wants to tug our heartstrings. He wants us to be obedient. He wants us to basically allow him to convict us as to how we can better serve 
in this area, or at least be equipped to know how we're served uh, in this area, uh, and the crises that the church sometimes face, which we'll be looking at as well. I love what Psalm 68, 5 says. It says that God is a father to the fatherless. Amen? And he's a defender of widows. God's a defender of widows. That blows me away because you know what you read in the New Testament? Jesus rebuked some of the religious leaders, right? Like the Pharisees and so forth. Because he says that they devour widows' houses. So they would see a woman who lost her husband. And she was vulnerable. And they'd go over to her and they'd try to swindle her out of her money or out of her livestock or out of her land or perhaps even sexually. I mean, he said they devour widows' houses. And he said they will have greater damnation. That's the heart of God. So he sees the injustices enacted against widows. He cares about them. Remember the widow of Nain and Jesus she, I mean, she was in dire straits because what happened? She already had lost her husband. She was a widow. But then she lost her only what? Her only son. And why would that be a big deal? Because there was no you know, social security back then, was there? There was no life insurance or IRAs or uh, retirement plans or any of that, right? So you were basically in trouble if you're a widow and you didn't have help. That's why there were some welfare laws that God stipulated in the Old Testament. There was the dictum given in Scripture that uh, those who had fruit trees and so forth, when they harvested them, that they say you had several fruit trees, you, weren't, you were supposed to leave the fruit that fell to the ground for the poor, which included widows. Remember the story of Ruth and Naomi? That's exactly what was going on there. So God, even through his legislative stipulations of the law of Moses was making sure that he was taking care of those who were hurting. Amen. But now we enter into a new situation. We enter into the church. And Jesus has compassion on the older woman before he actually births the church, right? But he, this widow of Nain, he heals her son because it was such a blessing to her because she would depend upon her son or potentially have to become a beggar, you know? And that just shows the grace and the heart of, the, of God's love. And I just, I just, our God's so awesome. In fact, in James chapter 5, there's a command that's very interesting because he talks about bogus religion in James chapter 1. You know, don't be, uh, hearers of the word only, deceiving yourselves, but be doers of the word, right? For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror, and once he's looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. He's in trouble. But the man who looks intently at the perfect law, right, of liberty, and then he says he's not just a hearer, but he's an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. So you're blessed when you do the word, not just hear it. So if you come on Wednesday night and you're like, man, I'm hearing the word, I'm being encouraged, but we don't obey it, we're in trouble. And after he says all this, he says in the last couple of verses of James chapter 1, he says, pure and undefiled religion is this. And by the way, that comes on the heel of a verse that says, if any of you, anyone thinks himself to be religious, oh, I'm a religious person, man. Right? But does not bridle his tongue, cusses like a sailor, tells a bunch of dirty jokes, constantly mean-spirited about people and running people down. He says, uh, and deceives his own heart, you know, because he doesn't bridle his tongue. This man's religion is worthless. 
So he's contrasting worthless religion with, with pure and undefiled religion, he says in the very next verse, is this. This is pretty heavy. What's pure and undefiled religion? To visit widows. Actually, he says orphans first here. To visit orphans. Maybe he says them first because they're even more destitute, being little. Visit orphans and widows. Pure and undefiled religion is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. Amen. And to remain unstained by the world. So we definitely want to remain unstained by the pollutions of the world. As Christians, it says in 2 Peter that we've escaped the corruptions of the world through lust. The world's corrupt through lust. We've escaped that, amen? And as Christians, we want to stay. We want to go back to the world. We want to go back to the, the promiscuous sex, the illicit drugs, right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that whole wicked system. We don't want to go back to it. But that's part of it. But also, it's not what you just stay away from. It's what you pursue, which is you pursue God and you pursue people. And one thing we're supposed to be pursuing as Christians is disadvantaged people. We're supposed to be pursuing people that are hurting. Amen? We're supposed to be pursuing. You can't just say, well, I'm a Christian and this is my ministry and just ignore widows and orphans. Now, it's, now as I say that, it's like some of you are scratching your head. Wait, where are the widows and orphans that I'm supposed to minister to? Because now you do have retirement plans and you do have orphanages and you do have, you know, uh, all kinds of things, IRAs and, you know, social security and all these things, welfare that help people. But there are still people hurting, isn't there, that we can reach out to and help. Amen. There are still old folks that need help, need our encouragement, need our love. And there are also young people that are just like orphans spiritually. By the way, we were all orphans. Because Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Amen? And he did it. He made his home in our hearts. Amen? But we want to make sure what he's talking about here, though, when we look at 1 Peter 5, he's talking about widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He's talking about widows indeed. And who are they? So we're looking at kind of some background. But I want to give you a little bit more background before we go into 1 Timothy 5. And I want you to go to the book of Acts chapter 6 because there was a schism, contention, division happening in the church because of ministry to the widows. And it wasn't as efficient as it should have been. And it seemed as though there was some favoritism perhaps going on that caused some conflict among the different widows and how they were being taken care of. And it's quite interesting because in Acts chapter 6, we read in verse 1, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, the church was growing. So as the church was growing, it needed to become more organized. Amen? You know? And if you have a family that grew all of a sudden, if you had one kid, then it just multiplied when you had another kid. All of a sudden, there were, you had to organize. You know? Well, when the church multiplies in disciples, sometimes there's things that arise uh, conflicts and things that need to be dealt with. So it says, now at that, this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So what's going on here? A little bit of, just a little bit of background. Uh, you had the day of Pentecost, right? What happened to the day of Pentecost? It was one of the th major, three major feasts 
There were more than three feasts. There were seven in total, but three major feasts. And three times a year, believers uh, that followed Yahweh throughout the Old Testament times would go when the temple was up and they would go to the temple, amen? And they sing the songs, uh, songs of ascent, you know, these different psalms in the book of Psalms of praises to God as they went to these different feast days. And on the day of Pentecost, well, now the New Testament has come. The new covenant has been ushered in by Jesus, amen? And it's on the day of Pentecost. And what perfect timing. And the, the feast days line up specifically with God's activity in his plan of redemption. Remember the Passover? The Passover was the Passover lamb was sacrificed. That was a picture of Christ's sacrifice. And when Jesus was actually sacrificed on the cross, what day was it? Pente- it, was, it, was, it was Passover, amen? And remember, they couldn't take him down. They had to take him down, I'm sorry, before the Sabbath. But then it said on the day after the morrow, they would have the feast of what? Remember the feast of unleavened bread? And remember they would uh, wave the harvest and that was the same day, and the morning would come, it would become light, and the priest would wave the harvest of wheat. And it's on that very day that Jesus rose from the dead, amen? He's the wheat, he said, unless a kernel of wheat fall to the ground and die, right? It will not come back to life. And he came back to life, and it would bear more fruit. So that's, all these feast days were perfectly in tune with the plan of God's redemption. There's more to it, we don't have time to get into it. But what would follow 40 days later after, you know, well, the day of Pentecost. And what was the day of Pentecost? Believers would come from all over the place to celebrate the, the harvest. Because now it's not first fruits. Now it's like, hey, the harvest is coming in. And guess what? What happened on the day of harvest? That's when the church was empowered by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Perfect timing again, because in Acts chapter 2, he says, go, you'll be my what? Witnesses. They were going to go harvest the world. You'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Amen? Amen? So now they're fulfilling the day of Pentecost because it was a picture of God harvesting through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his resurrection. Now the gospel is supposed to go throughout the entire world. Now the day of Pentecost, all these people are here from different parts of the world. And to celebrate the harvest, Jews from different parts of the world. And now they're being one to Christ as Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon in chapter 2. And then chapter 3 preaches again. You know, it says he can first to you, verse 26 of chapter 3, that he would turn you from your iniquities or your ways of wickedness, repentance, right? And people were coming to Christ, and many priests believed. And it was just so beautiful because all these Jews that had come for the day of Pentecost were hearing the gospel, and they were, they were literally being harvested, which was the spiritual counterpart to the type of Pentecost. But guess what happened? Many of the Jews that had come were from outside Jerusalem, and they were Hellenists. We just read about the Hellenists. We're in conflict with the Hebrews. Because the Hellenistic Jews felt that what? The Hebrews were being treated better than they were. So they felt there was favoritism. The Hebrews, they're all Hebrews, right? But the native Hebrews were the native Hebrews. They were already there before the day of Pentecost. They were living in Jerusalem or thereabout, right? And they're native, and they're getting treated really well as widows, compared to the Hellenists, who are foreigners that came from different countries and different regions, right? Got saved. They're all Christians, though. These are, you know, we're talking about, this is Acts 6, we're talking about the church now. These are Jews that came from the diaspora from different parts of the world. Now understand this. What's the diaspora? The diaspora is the dispersion. Remember when God judged his people by dispersing them throughout the world, when they rejected 
before they, not just when they rejected Messiah, that came a little bit later in the book of Acts, but prior to that, remember the Persian, uh, remember, I'm sorry, the Assyrian assault on the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, they dispersed. The tribes went all around the world. Then 150 or so years later, what happened to Judah? The Babylonians came and they were dispersed. Then the Judah and Benjamin were dispersed, right? And now certain people had come back from the dispersion. Certain ones were at home in whatever lands they were, far away from Jerusalem. But they said, hey, we're believers, we're Jews, we're going to go back on the day of Pentecost and worship God on the day of Pentecost because we're still believers. These were the Hellenists that had traveled a long way, many of them. Now you have this group of people hearing the gospel. Hebrew Jewish women coming to Christ who are widows. And Hellenists who are also Hebrews but not natives. They're Hellenists who were part of these other regions and sometimes countries who got saved, but they wanted to stay with the church. They, didn't, they was like, man, we just found a, In fact, we've only found one church. We're new Christians. And man, these apostles are here. And this is a really cool church because we know Jesus now. And we know we're saved. And we know who the Messiah is. And they just parked themselves and began to live there in Jerusalem. You see what's going on? But there was a big difference now. Think about this between the Hellenists and the native Hebrews. The native Hebrews, their culture was such where they felt like they were doing things right. Remember how the, just remember the Samaritans and the, and the Jews, that conflict where they felt they weren't worshiping right? Well, a lot of the native Hebrew Christians looked down their noses at the Hellenists. Why? Because the Hellenist Jews were considered compromised morally. They were considered those who had actually compromised God's word and devotion to God's truth with Greek culture. So being Hellenized was a bad thing, and it was in many aspects because you could actually potentially open yourself up to idolatry, and you could actually put you know, a lot of wickedness before God's word. That could be a real danger, right? But these Hellenists, those who came out of these Hellenistic regions, had truly become Christians now, amen? But the Jews who were native, were looking down at them, they felt. However, because guess what? The Hellenists had a hard time with the native Jews because they looked at them as holier than thou. Are you seeing the conflict? They said, well, you guys are holier than thou. You think that it's all about you and that God loves you more than us and what have you. So you have this conflict that was already going on between you know, the Pharisees and Hellenism in the past. Now it's the Hebrew native believers and the Hellenistic Jews who had become Christians, but they're all Christians. So as Christians, they should all be what? Getting along, amen? But they're not. And they feel that the way the food is being distributed, is that the rain again? Wow, it's back, man. I'm not complaining, Lord, thank you. It's been gnarly lately. The hills are already green again, man. I'm thinking, oh, those hills are mountains. I look and I think, they're mountains? Yeah, when I, when I think of like, you know, you know, Northern California, when we go up to like Yosemite, then these are like hills. When I think of Texas, I love my Texas brothers and sisters. When I think of Texas, then these are mountains. Okay. <laughs> I was driving thinking about that today. I took my wife to Thousand Oaks. I was looking at the green hills. I'm like, hmm, we call those hills or mountains. But uh, I don't even drink that water, so we should probably not even put it up here. I appreciate it, though. You still get reward. Thank you. I don't know what's wrong with me. I need to drink more water. But I guess I was thinking, oh, we got so much time, so I just stay focused. But uh, anyway, you guys, 
we have to be very, very careful that we don't bring prejudices in to the kingdom of God and that you don't treat people from different backgrounds in different ways. You know how many people do that in the name of Jesus? You know there's all white churches in the past? Or there's this color or that color or this flavor or that flavor? That's embarrassing to me. And it also is nauseating. Then when you, we shouldn't have any prejudices, amen? Because these Hellenists now, right, and these native Hebrews, if they love Jesus, amen, they're, they're going to be beautiful in Christ and he's going to change them, amen? And it's not a race problem, it's a grace problem, amen? And it's, I would say it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And we all have it, amen? And we all need God's grace. The solution is, and there's racial problems for sure, because there's wicked people that judge people based on their race. And that, that's, that's not very smart, by the way, because we all come from who? One man, amen? One woman. The first two parents, amen? We all share the same blood. We can get blood transfusions with each other. Can't do it with a dog or a rabbit or a cat, but I can with other humans, amen? So God, God is good. So these guys were kind of having some prejudices against you know, other Christians, and that's wrong. And we see what happens here. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being, oh what, overlooked in the daily serving of food. So there's this tension going on. And uh, I've explained now. It's kind of interesting when you get some background, you look at that verse now, right? Now you see, okay, that's what's going on there. I think that's important to look at background. Uh, verses 2 and 3. So the 12, that's the 12 apostles, they replaced Judas with Matthias, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is, not, uh, it, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, or full of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to what? Prayer and to what? Prayer to the ministry of the word. So they were coming, these widows and so forth, to the apostles saying, hey, fix this problem. Uh, and they're saying, hey, it's not desirable that we leave the ministry of the word and prayer. God was using the apostles to reach mass people, right? By the preaching of the word. And they were devoting themselves to prayer and so forth. And they said, if we start getting, doing all this stuff and managing, trying to manage everything... We're not going to be effective in our ministry. And they understood the enemy would try to take them out that way. So what did they say? To appoint who many, how many people? Seven. To, to, do, to do the deal where they were making sure this would work out. They would be organized. Amen? This is powerful. Uh, verse, chapter 6, verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to what? Prayer and the what? Ministry of the Word. And I'll tell you what... Uh, if you're in an elder or in pastoral ministry, man, it takes, you got to stay in the Word. You know? You got to stay in prayer. You got to be praying all the time. You know? And, uh, and of course, you're going to put out fires from time to time. But if you always are putting out fires, then if I'm always putting out fires, which sometimes I seem to be doing that quite a bit, uh, counseling and so forth, but that's prayer, that's ministry of the Word as well, I wouldn't have messages ready for you. I had Josh supposed to do a voiceover 
which is Ministry of the Word, because we're doing an expose on the Super Bowl and an expose that we're doing on Usher, who's headlining the Super Bowl half-item show. You won't believe what I've got on that guy. Voodoo ritual type stuff for songs to be popular. Crazy stuff. Got to see our video. Yeah, I'm not going to show it on Sunday, but you can check it out sometime. Uh, but uh, as I'm looking at this stuff, I'm like, I'm telling Josh, I, you know, I couldn't make it last night. I said, Josh, I'm going to do this on today. I'm like, my wife's like, can you take me, you know, I got to pick up my car, you know. And I'm like, man, I got to get my Wednesday study. And I've got to get this thing all written out to do the voiceover with Josh, which I had to get here early to do the voiceover with Josh. And I was able to pull it off. But I said, Josh, I'm not going to be here when I want to be here because I've got to juggle this. Ministry is busy, you know. And, you know, a, a man said to Donald Barnhouse, wow, what I, I, I give up the whole world to be able to preach the word like you do. And Donald Barnhouse said, well, you actually would have to do that. <laughs> In other words, you don't have a whole lot of extra time. You know, in your life, you know. Uh, but it's glorious because you're, you're feeding God's sheep. And Jesus said, if you love me, feed my sheep. Amen. So it's interesting. Uh, in First Thessalonians, they had to give themselves to prayer. And by the way, there's commands to pray all the time. And you know those commands aren't just given to pastors and elders. First Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Wow. Psalm 86.3 says, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am calling on you constantly. Luke 18.1, Jesus taught, uh, says one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray. I love this. That they should always pray and never give up. Don't stop praying. And when the Bible's talking about praying without ceasing, it doesn't mean that you're constantly moving your mouth and you never stop and then you're sleeping here. Still, you know. No, it means that you have a, you're in a constant mode of prayer. You just, you're, you know, it's like, you know, it's like if I'm driving on a vacation with my wife and we're driving to another state, we don't constantly talk every second. Well, sometimes it feels like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't just talk every second, you know, for you know, 12 hours straight or whatever it is. We don't do that very often, but I remember we drove to Idaho a while back. But we're, we could say we continually talked, even though we stopped at times, but we're not, we never said we're not talking to each other anymore. You, know? you constantly keep that relationship going and praying. And I love it because Jesus used an illustration of a widow there you know, who had this wicked guy mistreating her, and she went to the judge, and he wouldn't do anything about it, but she kept going to him. And because she kept going to him, it says she wore him out, Right? And he, he said, don't, I don't fear God, I don't fear man, but because this woman keeps coming to me, you know, I'm going to help her out. And he helped her out. And then Jesus said, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. But will he find faith on the earth? Meaning that faith was continual prayer. That's a picture of our faith. So we need to continually be going to the Lord. And then he says he will speedily, because the prayers of that widow is an example, he will speedily avenge his elect from the evil one that persecutes his people. It's kind of interesting because Jesus' church is often depicted as a bride, right? There she's depicted as a widow. Interesting. Uh, Mark 1.35 says of Jesus, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. So I encourage you guys, find a place to pray. Do you have a place that you pray? You should have different places to pray. You know? I I. I, I can think of different places in my home. My car is a place I pray. So I'm driving, it's a good place to pray, you know. But then there's times, there's places where, 
You know, David talked about praying in his bed. That's, that's a great place to pray. Amen. I pray in my office chair. I pray in my knees on my bed. Now I use my, my wife's chair in her office because our bed is like too high. It's like I can't get on my knees and I go like that or something, you know. It'd be kind of weird. So I lean against it now. But uh, I'm like, that's kind of different now. But praying and finding places to pray. And uh, I love Philippians 4, 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about what? Everything. Amen. Tell God what you need and thank him, you know, for all he's done. Amen. Ephesians 6, 18. Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. So part of spiritual words, fear is praying. Amen. And we're going to see in a little bit that these widows that we're talking about in 1 Timothy 5 are supposed to be given over to prayer. Just as the apostles are here. So we're also all supposed to be praying. Amen. But those in ministry of the Word need to make sure they're spending special attention in the Word of God and in prayer. Okay? And then they, they appoint seven uh, uh, deacons. Well, the word deacon isn't actually used there. Most commentators and most believers look at these as deacons because they're servants. You know what the word deaconos means? It means servant. Amen? And these are seven specific servants. And it's cool because in verse 5, it talks about how they were men full of faith and the Holy Spirit. I think that's amazing. They were full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And in verse 6, it says, And, the, uh, uh, and these uh, they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they what? Laid their hands on them. You know what I think is cool about that? Is it's not like, they're not like going on a mission trip. But they're on a mission. And some would say, well, that's the practical things of the church. Some might think that's not even very important. That's so important. The practical things of the church are so important, guys. And some things are, a lot of people are drawn to the practical things of the church. How can I help out in this way? How can I help out in that way? How can I help in this way? And God makes us all differently because he sees all these different needs. Oh, and by the way, you know what I find fascinating about this passage that just really blows me away? Look at chapter 6, verse 4. We just looked at that. But look at verse 4. What does it say? We'll devote ourselves to prayer and to what? The ministry of the Word. Isn't that interesting, the word ministry? You know what the Greek word ministry is translated in verse 1? Look at verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews... Uh, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The word serving is the same Greek word as ministry. Isn't that interesting? So serving the food was ministry. Ministering the word was ministry. One was a ministry of the word of God, amen? One was a ministry of physical food. Are you with me? Both are important ministries, amen? Both were ministries, because you're helping the physical body of somebody, somebody who could be destitute, hurt, not get enough, potentially get weak and die even, or diseased. So you have to remember that the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Amen? In fact, both ministries are needed, both spiritual and practical. And I believe in Acts chapter 6, we are seeing the first deacons appointed there. Very, 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 very important ministry. In fact, these deacons, it wasn't just like, oh, we're going to serve food. No, they were full of wisdom. 
full of the Holy Spirit, amen? Because guess what? When you're dealing with two widows at each other's throats, they got some, they got some age, and that means they've got some knowledge, and they've got some wisdom. And the older ladies in the church, the elderly here, those who are in their late 30s, 40s, and up, you know, I'm including everybody now. No, I'm just teasing, guys. <laughs> those of you, I'm teasing. Those of you who are in your hundreds, you know, at, at this point, cover my, make sure my wife's clear now, too, and everything else, you know. But, you know, I'm talking about widows, your older ladies who've been married for a long, long, long time, then their husband dies, and may not be a long, long time, as Paul mentions, as we'll see in Scripture. But you see widows matter to God. Isn't it interesting that the conflict is over how to treat the widows in the early church? They were trying to care for the widows. And Paul wants to make sure that they are not being neglected. Amen? Now, if you could... Uh, by the way, what a privilege it is to be a servant of God, isn't it? I mean, you should be saying, am I serving the Lord, you know? Because the Holy Spirit, God in us, wants to use us, not just elders or the apostles here who represented the elders and pastors, but he wants to use people uh, that will serve in whatever way. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, looking for those he can strengthen. And I've tried to remind you how serious this is, because we're going to stand before God and give an account. First and foremost, do we know Jesus? Are we saved? Secondly, after that, for those who are saved, what have we done for Jesus? And how we treat other believers is how we treat Jesus. When Saul was having Christians killed, remember? And Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou who? Me. They're the apple. The, God's people are called the apple of his eye. You poke... God's people, you put God in the eye. You put Christians to death, that's part of his body. You're persecuting me, Paul. When Jesus said to the, of the sheep on his right, he said to those who bless them, what you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to who? Unto me. So, by the way, brothers and sisters, when you're blessing your brothers and sisters in Christ, widows, young people, whatever age, you're blessing Jesus, man. That should give you motivation, amen? God will stand before Jesus and how I treated him. On the other hand, Matthew 25, I was in prison, you never visited me. I was sick, you didn't visit me. I was unclothed, you never gave me clothes. I was hungry and thirsty, you never fed me, you never gave me anything to drink. When, Lord, did we not do these things for you? When you didn't do these things for the least of my brother, you didn't do them to me. Don't neglect ministering to your brothers and sisters in Christ. For Hebrews chapter 6 says, God is not unjust to forget how you've ministered to him in your ministering to the saints. Wow. Those scriptures are written in my heart because that's the Lord's heart that we minister to one another. Why do you think I'm always encouraging you to love one another, bless one another? But is loving one another just giving each other a hug? That's part of it. It could be something little, giving somebody a glass of cold water. Jesus says, you'll not lose your reward. That's a big deal. Just being kind-hearted and reaching out to people and helping each other. So we need to bless each other in the church, amen? Love one another, encourage one another. And, and that's when the world sees that, that gets the world's attention. And that draws people to Christ, amen? Jesus says, they'll know you by your love for what? One another. They'll know what? 
they'll know that you're my disciples. Amen? So let's, let's stay busy for the Lord, doing the work of the Lord as a congregation. Let's love the Lord, amen, with, with great passion. But let's love one another, amen? The Bible says, do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of God. Galatians chapter 6. Now, when we look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4, it says, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. So this is acceptable in the sight of God. What's he saying in verse 4? This is important. Do not miss verse 4. Verse 3 talks about, you know, honoring widows who are widows what? Indeed. And he's going to define what a widow indeed is. But then in verse 4, let's read it again. I don't want you to miss this. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their what? Own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Brothers and sisters, this verse is so, so important. Because in the Western world, we've lost this. If you look at a lot of other cultures around the world, they take care of their older folks. They take care of my sister singing the beautiful, beautiful blessing us with our, your, your worship. In the Philippines, do they just kick the old people to the curb? They take care of them, don't they? You notice the difference out here? Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, you could look at East, you could look at the Far East, the same thing. China, a lot of the Asian countries, same. You could look at Mexico, you know. We visited Mexico and we tried to help out the orphans and widows there. But you see the families try to take care of them typically. And when the Bible says honor your parents, honor your what? Your father and your mother. It doesn't mean that you're just nice to them when you see them. It means you respect them. Remember, I've shared that scripture with you. It says, when a gray-haired person enters into the room, an aged person, rise up and show them honor. Is it okay that we just go with the culture, or should we go with God's word? should go with God's word. And it's interesting because when older folks got older, God wanted us to take care of our parents. Isn't it kind of interesting that a lot of older folks, when they get older, they, they almost become like infants again? They can't take care of themselves sometimes physically. They soil themselves at times. They have a hard time bathing. They need help eating sometimes. They need ch help for change of clothes. Even when they die, a lot of times folks, older folks will die in a fetal position. Isn't that interesting? Well, God designed it so we take care of infants. Amen. But he also designed it so that the infants, when they get older, when the older folks are being ready to be birthed into the kingdom of heaven and leaving this planet and reverting back to losing a lot of the capacities that they had to grow into, that we younger people are there to take care of them. How heartbreaking is it that older folks have children, and there's many of them, millions of older folks are in the hospitals right now old folks' homes, not visited by their children ever who live in the same towns where they exist. That's wicked. I'm telling you right now, if you have parents and they're in old folks' home and you can visit them and you never visit them, 
you need to start visiting them. Amen? You need to be there. And sometimes, not always, because sometimes they get better care at a home than they would at your house because you got to go work and you're not there to be with them or whatever. I'm not, I'm not passing judgment on anybody. I don't know of any situation that comes to my mind right now that I'm thinking of this person is neglecting. So don't think, oh, he's talking to me. Who told him? No, that's not even going through my mind at all. I just know how the world works. I know in the West, people are so busy loving pleasures, loving the things of this world that the parents that sowed into their lives when they were young are forgotten and kicked to the curb. And it ought not be that way. So notice what he says in verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren. So this isn't just left up to the children now. It's also left up to who? The grandchildren. Isn't that interesting? They must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. Meaning, if you're going to be holy, you need to make sure you're first and foremost holy among your own family. How often do I preach that? Well, I tell when part of being an elder, if you're going to be an elder, it says you must what? Manage your own household well. You better be a good husband. You better be a good dad. God looks there first before he lets you minister in the church. Ooh, we return to that again. Isn't that interesting? They must first show their piety where? Toward their own family. So I look to make an elder. I'm like, who who is this man? Does he fear God? Does he love his family? Is he a devoted husband? Is he a devoted father? Now look what he says. In regard to their own family and to make some what? Return to what? Their parents. What does it mean return? I mean, you've been blessed. They so did you. Make some return to them now. Amen? Brothers and sisters, the world isn't going this way. The world wants euthanasia. Let's just get rid of them. They're sponges. They're parasites. They're, they, should just, they're, they don't need to exist anymore. And they just want to off a bunch of old people just like they want to off young people in the womb. That's not the way of the Lord. To make some return to their parents, for this is what? acceptable in the sight of God. This blesses God's heart. Amen? So as difficult as it can be at times, I'd rather be doing that which is difficult, that blesses God's heart, that keeps me, his smile on me and me abiding in his smile and his will than being out of his will, grieving his heart. Amen? Pretty powerful. And this is important because Paul's going to get into this whole thing about a lot of people are, oh, let the church take care of them. After all, look at what was going on in Acts 6. The church was taking care of the widows. Well, just let the church take care of my grandma. Sorry, grandma, you got the church. Nope. Family needs to minister to them before the church does. Are you with me? Grandma gets kicked to the curb or she gets kicked to the church. That's not God's design. Relatives are supposed to take care of them first. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. Now she who is a widow indeed meaning really a widow, in God's sight as far as one to be taken care of by the church, and who has not been left alone, has fixed what? Her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Now this is what's going on now. Now watch this shift. Paul is saying something so important to understand. He's saying that there's widows in the church that should be taken care of by their children and their grandchildren and not be a burden to the church. Because if the church tries to take care of all the widows... The church is going to run out of money overnight, right? The church is going to run out of time to minister to other people because they're taking care of all the widows. And the church has become a nursing home. That's not what God intended. The best care that will happen to the widows, first and foremost, will be their own children and grandchildren. Do you understand that? That's why, this, that's why you know, Satan and socialism and communism wants to destroy the family unit 
as though the world system will take better care of the family where people don't even care because there's no familial connection than the family would. That's ridiculous, amen? But don't let the accusations be true. The government always wants to say, you need us. Let us move in. But the government's not going to care for your kids. They're not going to care for your, your children. They're not going to care for your grandparents. They're not care for you more than your family's going to care for you. Are you with me? So family needs to take care of family. But he's also saying, with regard to the church, there are those widows that the church needs to take care of. And they're called widows indeed. The widows that he's saying, these are the widows that the church needs to have on its list, on their welfare list. And now he's going into that. Are you with me? Verse 5. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone, meaning, guess what? She's all alone. No husband. No kids. No grandkids. No one to take care of her. No social security. No welfare. No life insurance. Because they didn't have that then. Has fixed her hope on God. Meaning she truly puts her trust in God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. By the way, sisters, some of you will be widows. Some of you will be widows indeed. You have no children left, no husband. But you can't just be a widow. Being a widow indeed doesn't mean just your husband's dead and you have no children. There's also other criteria you have to truly be a sincere seeker of God. Because, follow me on this, what do you mean? He's going to define some really strong <laughs> qualifications to make that widows indeed list so you can be on the church welfare list. Why would he be so stringent? Because guess what? What if Blessed Hope Chapel was known? We say, hey, we're going to help whatever widows, period. Come, we'll give you free money, free food, free gas and everything. Where would the church's money be in about three days? Gone. We can't even pay rent. Because everybody'd line up, you'd have every homeless person, you'd have guys dressed up like old women. I'm a widow. You'd have everybody just coming to the door, knock, 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 I'm a widow, I'm a widow, I'm a widow. And it's like, no, he wants to make sure there's not a scam going on. So he's giving this strict criteria that these are women of God who have been Christians who fear and love the Lord. So he says, uh, of a true widow, a widow indeed, that they pray day and night. Well, it actually says night and day. Amen. I love that. And by the way, if you are in that situation where your husband dies before you, and you don't have any children or grandchildren, and you're a widow indeed, you have to look at that adversity as an opportunity. Adversity is opportunity. Wait, how could there be What great opportunity, because guess how close you get to the Lord now? You could talk to him night and day. And the closest of our God should be dear to us. And we should all be seeking intimacy with our God by praying to the Father in the name of Jesus, recognizing his presence, that he loves us, and that he hears us. Amen? And we need to be developing our relationship with the Lord. And you don't want to wait till your husband dies to get close to the Lord. Amen? You want to make sure you know the Lord now, and you want to be close to him now. Amen? But when somebody leaves and you're just with the Lord... That relationship could be deepened. And instead of depending on your husband, guess who you're having to depend on even more now? The Lord. In fact, it's interesting. Now, while I was looking at this passage and thinking about it and praying through this, the scripture that hit me was 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says to those who are unmarried, if they have the gift of singleness, stay single. Don't just rush into a marriage if you have the gift of singleness because those who are single have more freedom in the Lord. 
But those who are, don't have the gift of singleness and they get married, they have to be part of the world more to meet the needs of their spouse. And they're not as free to minister. And I thought, wow, the widows who are widows indeed have more freedom now. Not that that's, well, good, I hope my husband dies. I have more freedom in ministry. No, I'm not talking about that. But I'm just saying when you, that transition takes place, now there's another dimension of life that you enter into when your spouse is gone. And this has to do with women who are over 60, which you'll see in a minute, what I'm talking about. Because he gives he, he, this really incredible wisdom by the Holy Spirit given here. And it's interesting because he says night and day. You know, nighttime is a great time to seek the Lord. You see that in the scripture. Not just daytime. I, I love to worship the Lord during the daytime. In fact, that's my favorite time because you can see, especially if you're outdoors, you see the mountains and the beauty of the Lord. You just want to just praise you, Lord, because you just see his beauty. But at nighttime, when you see the stars, right, you just want to praise God as well. Or fog rolls in or just, just a smell of how the nature gets when there's, a, when there's some moisture on, laid down on the ground, the dew or whatever. It's all these beautiful times. But uh, by the way, the, the, the nighttime is something, oh, it's nighttime. That's the devil's time. No. It can be for witches and stuff like that, for sure. You know? Uh, they love, in fact, midnight is a time that's called the witching hour. 3 a.m. is called the witching hour in the occult, and 12 midnight is called the witching hour. It used to be mid, like in Hamlet, you know? Shakespeare talks about the witching hour, and he speaks of midnight being the witching hour. Now it's 3 a.m. and midnight. And that's when witches, because witches and sorcerers and occultists, Satanists, they believe like Halloween. They believe that that's when the, there's a thinner veil in, to the spiritual world. They could open up themselves to the spirit world more. The solstices, right? Summer solstice. Oh, but they also believe certain times of the day. The nocturnal time is midnight. In fact, it's interesting. We did a whole expose on the biggest artist on the planet right now named Taylor Swift. And... Uh, she just wrote, she just got album of the year, Grammys a couple days ago, called Midnights for her album Midnights. Song on that album called Midnight. Hmm. And it's interesting because we show quote after quote after quote where she talks about Willow, her song Willow, and how, uh, and Willow is about, she says that she, when that song makes her feel witchy and she makes her think of going out to a witch's coven and practicing witchcraft and she identifies herself as a witch now and she talks about how she got a boyfriend because Lady Gaga cast a spell in the past and stuff I didn't even put in our video. And, and, and she has these magic orbs and she dresses like a witch on stage now and she'll go like, why the lights go this way and that way and, and her new album's going to be, I believe, about that as well because she's able to help the tortured poet department, you know? She's all into the occult. Oh, and by the way, when I saw After Willow, the next album, Midnights, I thought, hmm, Midnights. I remember when I was in the occult, and that's when I would write a lot of dark stuff, man, just channel stuff. And then I thought, I know what she's talking about, I believe, there. And I started looking at interviews, and she said, yeah, Midnights is because when I should be sleeping, that's when I'm writing these songs. Yeah, it's the witching hour, right? Well, for the Christian, it's different. That's when we seek Jesus, Amen. And we don't have to wait for the veil to get thin. The veil has already been opened up by the blood of Christ. And we can enter confidently into his throne room and commune with our God in the name of Jesus and through his precious blood. Amen. Amen. In fact, Psalm 119, verse 62 says, The wicked have laid a trap for me, but I do not forget your law. In the middle of the night, I wake up to praise you, 
for your righteous judgments. Psalm chapter 92 verse 1 says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning, your faithfulness in the evening, accompanied by the ten-string instrument, a harp, and the melody of a lyre. You guys, morning and night, these are all times to praise Him and to pray to Him. Amen? We all need to be people of prayer. And so it's interesting. The apostles are like, we need to make sure we give ourselves give them a prayer and preach the word. But guess now we're on the widows, and guess what they're supposed to be doing? Seek the Lord day and night. And then all Christians, we're supposed to always be seeking the Lord. Amen? Let's be men and women of prayer. If you're praying and seeking the Lord constantly, guess what? You're not getting in a lot of trouble, are you? You're not falling away and stuff, are you? The Bible says to, in the book of Jude to build yourselves up by praying in the Holy Spirit. You build yourselves up in your faith as you wait for the mercy to be revealed at the coming of the Lord. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. I have to speed up. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead while she lives. The widow, indeed, is one who lives for God. She prays evening and morning. Amen. She lives for Jesus. Amen. She's a servant of the Lord, the Most High. The widow who lives for herself and pleasure can you imagine? I die. My wife's a widow. All of a sudden you find out that you come and visit Lisa and she's smoking in the office and, getting, and drinking. And, and she's, she's going to go. You're gonna, they're talking about a mission trip, but she's going to Vegas to gamble the kids' inheritance away. You know? And uh, that would be really sad. You know? That's not my wife. It's not even a warning. Don't worry. There's nothing veiled there. That's, that's the furthest thing from her thinking. You know? She didn't ever think, like, let's go to Vegas and do that. I'm not saying if you ever gambled, you're in trouble, you know. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt not gamble. But it does say not to throw your money away, right? <laughs> so you got to be careful, right? And, uh, but it does say not to get drunk. And smoking is really destructive. But a lot of women and a lot of men, they live for themselves. They live for pleasures. And what does he mean she's dead while she's alive? Does it mean, well, she's a zombie. She's spiritually dead. Remember the prodigal son when he rebelled against his father and went and squandered his inheritance in Vegas or wherever he went. Remember he did that? When he came back after he repented, what did the father say? He was lost, but now he's found. My son was what? Dead, but now he's alive. His soul was dead. He was dead spiritually. Ephesians 2 describes those who don't know Christ as being dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, verse 22, he called a man to follow him and become, be his disciple. And then I said, wait, wait, Jesus, you know, i got to go. i got to make sure I go bury my father. <laughs> and Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, right? He says, come and follow me. And the man didn't follow him. Now that sounds, you might think, that's kind of harsh for Jesus. No, not at all, because it wasn't as though the guy's father just died. That was an expression that was used, and his father could die several years from then. Let me fulfill this first. And it seemed pious, amen, as though his father needed to die first, but it wasn't because it was just an excuse. And the dead burying the dead wasn't the physically dead burying his father. That's impossible, amen. It was the spiritually dead. He means you need to be born again. And by the way, you need to be born again, then you enter the kingdom of heaven, amen. You must be born again. That's how we become alive spiritually. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Now it's interesting, look at verse 7 and 8 now. I've got to move my pace along. Prescribe these things as well, things he's been talking about, 
so that they may be above reproach. So the widows, he wants to be above reproach. The widows indeed. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has what? He has denied the faith and is what? Worse than an unbeliever. Because guess what? Even unbelievers take care of their own families in many cases. A lot of cases they don't, but many unbelievers take care of their own families. So if he's claiming to be a Christian, a believer, he ought to be taking care of his own families. What's his point here? What's the Holy Spirit's point through Paul? That if widows have children and grandchildren, or if you're a child of a woman who's lost her husband or a grandchild, you should be making some return to help that, that, that your grandma or your mom out. Amen? And taking care of them. And if you don't take care of grandma or mom, you don't put any effort out, and she's in destitution, right? There's scarcity of life going on with her. She's hurting. Then you've denied the faith. 1 Timothy, or I should say Titus 1.16, speaks of those who profess to know him. I know, I know the Lord. But by their works, they deny him. And by your lack of trying to take care of grandma or mom and not caring about her, you're denying your faith. And God calls us to genuine, real faith. Faith without works is what? Is dead. Okay? We don't want to be spiritually dead. Amen? So, and he says, prescribe these things, teach these things so they're above reproach. This isn't only instruction to the widows. Right? This is mostly so far instruction to who? Children and even grandchildren. Amen? And we hear the term, a deadbeat dad. Well, guess what? I never heard, but I wrote it down. I never heard people called deadbeat children. But I thought about it. You know what? There's deadbeat children, too. Deadbeat children are those who don't take care of their grandparents. I guess there's deadbeat grandchildren, too. If they have the means and the ability, and they see grandmas like getting no visitors for years, and they could just go there instead of smoking a joint and snapping a bong load and getting drunk and partying and hopping from party. Yeah, stop that. Repent. You know, go visit grandma. Verses 9 and 10. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. So a widow has to make sure that she hasn't, she's not like hopping from man to man, sleeping with different guys, right? She has been married to one man, okay? Now, if that man, right, just like it says the elder must be the husband of one wife, most understand that to mean one wife at a time, meaning his wife is really his wife. But if he leaves a woman and he's not legitimately divorced and he doesn't have grounds and he marries another gal, then he's got more than one wife. Or if he's a polygamist, you know. Some say, oh, well, there's no polygamy in that time. Yeah, there was because the, the, the Roman records show us that the Romans allowed the Jews to still practice polygamy in the first century. So, uh, but this, this woman, uh, this widow, a widow indeed, uh, she can't be less than 60 years old. In other words, if she's younger than 60 years old, she probably still has some energy. She's still probably able to work to a degree. She probably still has some wherewithal. Uh, and there's another reason that comes up too, I believe. Verse 10, which we'll talk about in a minute. She's having a reputation of good works. You know, she, She's done things for the glory of God. She's lived for the Lord and has brought up children. If she has shown hospitality to strangers, uh, if she has washed the saints' feet. Now today, you're like, well, no, what widow's going to actually have done that? Well, that's a cultural thing. In those days, you didn't have sandals, and if you walked without, or you didn't have, I'm sorry, shoes, you had open sandals typically, and when you walked throughout the streets, you would get 
dirt and other things on you that need to be cleaned, right? Uh, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Sisters, if you want to be a widow indeed, and this, by the way, this is a great description of what we should be doing in the Lord, amen? Unless you have the gift of singleness, of course. But Paul, Paul also says that's even better in 1 Corinthians 7. So uh, a widow indeed is one who actually practices living the Christian life, amen? And uh, look at verses 11, and th- verse 11 now. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. That would be under what age? Under 60. Amen. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. So if you're under 60, I guess you're younger. You're a young person still. Man, I just missed the cut. I just turned 60. Bummer. But then again, I'm not a woman, so I don't know where the list is for men. I'm sure it's probably younger. But refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires in disregard for Christ, of Christ. So younger widow still has some vigor. She's not just energetic and still get, you know, get work done and stuff, but she could be, have sensual desires in disregard of Christ. They want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Verses 11 and 12. What's he saying there? He's saying a younger widow who actually is a widow indeed, or would be a widow indeed, if her age allowed her to be, but she's doing all these wonderful things, right? If you put her on the church welfare list, say she's 52. You put her on the church welfare list. You say, hey, you know what? Wow, you've been, you've been, ta- you've been washing the saints' feet in those days, washing the saints' feet. Today it's like, hey, you're taking care of the brothers and sisters. You've reached out to people. You just love to serve the Lord. It's, you've been awesome, you know. Uh, you, you, you live a life above reproach. You've, you, you've shown, done all these wonderful works. You can be on the list. But they're 52 years old. Well, now they could, they're young enough to get married again. They feel they want to get married. They feel like they're, you know, and, and uh, they've made a pledge, though, to not get married, to be on the church welfare list. And they've been getting money. Let's say they've been getting money from 52 to 55 for three years. And now they're almost like a deaconess of sorts, so to speak. They're serving in the church, but they're getting some church welfare money, enough to where they have enough to eat and stuff, right? Being taken care of. But now they say, oh, you know what? I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go marry Frank. And he's saying, don't put them under 60 on the list because it's going to cause confusion. They're going to have people come in and out of the list, and it's not a good deal. Are you with me? So he says in verse 13, at the same time, they also learn to be what? Idle. As they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies because they got all this energy. And they're not working because the church is taking care of them. Are you with me? Do you understand? They're young still, pretty young. And they got all this energy, but so now they're becoming busy by us. What do they do with themselves? They don't have to work, but they got all this, this money coming in enough to, not to work, but they've got all this energy. Well, they become busybodies. Talking about things not proper to mention, okay? They're no longer serious about serving Jesus. They start to disregard Jesus because, well, look at verse 14. Therefore, I want younger widows. How old are they? Under what? Under 60. To what? Get married. So getting married wasn't wrong under 60 if they were widows. It's just if they go on that list and they make a pledge that I'm going to be on this list and remain unmarried because I'm going to just be a widow, then they soak up the church's money. No, don't do that. If they're under 60, just don't put them on the list. Tell them to get married. You know, Go ahead and get married. Bear children. Keep house. And give the enemy no occasion for reproach. So he does this to protect them from Satan's temptations. You know how many people... I studied rich people that became wicked people. Not, I didn't say, hey, I want to study rich people and see what happened to them. 
I've studied wicked people and realized they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Take Karl Marx. Stinking rich. Had a lot of money. And then he had a friend, Ingalls, take care of him. Aleister Crowley, a lot of money. And they just got in all kinds of trouble and caused all kinds of trouble for the world. Watch out when you have, don't give me too much, Lord, the psalmist says, so I, don't, so I forget you. Don't give me too much or I can forget you. Amen. Well, that's what you can happen when you have too much being poured in you and you have a lot of energy still and you can use it in abusive ways. So he says, therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Verse 15, for some have already what? Turned aside to follow Satan. Wow. Hmm. Get married and bear children, and that will save them from what? Becoming busybodies, gossips, and turning away from Christ and following the devil. Right? Oh, you know why that's important? Because that term, bear children, is only used, it's a compound word. It's only used one other time in the whole New Testament. It bears light on this, or this passage bears light on that passage. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he says women will be saved through what? Childbearing. And I read debates what that means. What does it mean they'll be saved through childbearing? And it talks about the woman was deceived first by the devil, not the man. So the man wasn't deceived. But women will be saved through childbearing. Hmm. In other words, if Eve had, was chasing around a bunch of kids, she probably wouldn't have been dialoguing with the devil at the tree, huh? So how are women saved through childbearing in chapter 2? Because they have children. And they're fulfilling a ministry now. They're under 60. Now check this out. For some have already turned, verse 15, aside from Satan. How does he keep that from happening? From happening? Get married and bear children. Now, all this is said, if you just look at that, you just reserve just that and say, well, that's what the scriptures say. You have to put all scriptures together, Amen. Because the 1 Corinthians chapter 7 also talks about women who have a gift of what? Have a gift of what? Singleness. Amen? So if a sister has a gift of singleness, Paul's not counseling her to get married. He says not to get married. Amen? Because God's given certain women the ability to just be strong in the Lord and discreet as single women. Amen? Let's uh, finish up. Unless you don't get that. Do you understand that? Everybody understand that? All right. Verse 16. If any woman who is a believer, has dependent widows. She must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are what? Widows indeed. Who are the widows indeed? Women who are older than 60 and are doing all those wonderful good works for the Lord. The ones that are younger, get married. Unless, First Corinthians 7, you have to give singleness, right? And stay busy for Jesus, amen? Don't go aside after Satan. This shows me, brothers and sisters, this shows me that there is a spiritual war for the heart of our sisters as they get older. It doesn't just, oh, you get older, it's easier to serve the Lord. No, it can get harder. So we need to apply this to our lives and we need to make sure, you know, that we're taking care of our parents and our grandparents. Make sure that we're not busybodies. Make sure that we're raising our children for Jesus, staying busy for Him, amen. And make sure uh, that Family, first and foremost, takes care of family. Amen. It doesn't burden the church unnecessarily with that problem. And sometimes you do get people, it's like, man, if the church had this, my kid would turn out better. No, your responsibility is first and foremost to bring up your kids in Jesus. Amen. 
because you could just apply this everywhere. The more you think about it, it's like, well, if the church had a better children's program, or if the youth pastor was better, or if this or that or the other. It's like, no, the buck stops with you, man. The Bible doesn't even mention youth pastors. Did you know that? It doesn't even mention child care. It mentions you bringing up your kids in Jesus, amen. We just come alongside and try to help, amen. You make sure you're doing what God's called you to do and just be faithful to him, amen. Praise God. Are you with me tonight? We covered a lot of ground, huh? Let's all please stand. Love you guys.